I don't know about you, but I was pretty obsessed with the idea of time travel when I was a kid. And if I really think about it, I guess I still kind of am. Even with my time travel fascination, I somehow never discovered Caroline B. Cooney's Time Traveler's Quartet. So many of you have shared this series with me over the last few years, and I am so happy that we are finally covering it here on the podcast, especially since that means I finally got to start reading it. Episode 138 is all about the first book in the quartet, which is called Both Sides of Time and was published in 1995. In this installment, we meet Annie Lockwood, a 15-year-old with a truly terrible boyfriend and a tendency to romanticize pretty much everything. When she casually falls through time and finds herself a full century in the past at the beautiful Stratton Manor, she finally has the chance to experience the time period that she so firmly believes will offer her the glamour and romance she's been dreaming of. But will it actually meet her expectations? Let's just say that it's complicated. Annie and a handsome, wealthy young man named Strat may fall in love at first sight, but Annie also gets caught in the middle of tons of drama that reveals the sexist, classist, ageist, and misogynistic realities of 1895. On this episode, my guests and I chat about bad boyfriends and red flags, the dangers of buying into romantic ideals, our thoughts on tropes like love at first sight and the grass is always greener on the other side, the evolution of beauty standards over time, and the way that looks are often used to sort people into categories of good and evil in pop culture. We also take a deep dive into the challenges of revisiting a book that was meant to be super progressive, but nearly 30 years after that book was published. There are a lot of complex layers of sexism and patriarchy at work here. Let's give a big SSR welcome to this week's guest, Tirza Price. Tirza holds an MFA in creative writing for children and young adults from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She has worked as an independent bookseller and teen librarian and is now a contributing editor at Book Riot. When she's not writing, reading, or talking about YA books, she splits her time between experimenting in the kitchen and knitting enough socks to last the fierce Michigan winters. Pride and Premeditation is her debut novel and is now available for pre-order. It hits shelves on April 6th. Follow Tirza on Twitter at Tirza Price and on Instagram at Tirza.Price and learn more about her work at TirzaPrice.com. You can learn more about this podcast at www.ssrpodcast.com. It is the hub for everything. You can click listen for show notes and book recommendations from our awesome guests, shop for SSR tote bags, t-shirts, bookmarks, and stickers, support to become a Patreon sponsor and enjoy exclusive rewards, and book club to join the brand new SSR book club for free. Our April book club selections are The Giver and You Should See Me in a Crown, and I would absolutely love to have you join us. In the meantime, you can join the party on social media. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can follow the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. I love chatting with and getting to know listeners in those spaces. Social media is also a great place to share about the podcast, so if you're an SSR fan, please don't hesitate to post about the episodes you're loving. Don't forget to tag me so I can see and give you a shout out. Listeners, SSR is currently just a few ratings from hitting the 300 rating mark over on Apple Podcasts. If you are loving what you're hearing on the pod, I would love for you to help me hit that milestone with a five-star rating and or review. Leaving a rating literally takes a few seconds, and I appreciate each and every one. If you're feeling inspired, please head on over to that Purple Podcast app and tap those five stars. Thank you in advance. Here at SSR, we love to support independent bookstores whenever possible. After all, this is an independent podcast. If you love audiobooks, you can support indies through Libro FM, which sells the same audiobooks at the same price as the big guys do, but pays independent bookstores in the process. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. 
Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. If you're less of an audiobook listener and more of a physical book reader, I recommend shopping through bookshop.org, which also supports independent booksellers. When you shop through bookshop.org slash SSRPOD for the titles on your TBR, you support those indies and this podcast at no extra cost to you. As always, I want to say how much I appreciate each and every one of you who has shopped through these links. Your support helps SSR, not to mention indie booksellers, keep going strong. Okay, listeners, are you ready for some time travel? Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Tirza. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are tackling a book that was brand new to me. I'm going to be honest with you. Even as a 90s kid and a 90s like big reader kid, I had never heard of this series by Caroline B. Cooney, and I am a fan of her work. We've done the Face on the Milk Carton on the podcast before. Big fan of those books. I think I've read others of her books, but this Time Traveler series, never heard of it. Yeah, I think that is kind of what's exciting about this book is because a lot of people know her because of her thrillers and her mysteries and like the face on the milk carton is her most famous I think or at least best known I came to Caroline B. Cooney through her mysteries and I just have like this very distinct memory of looking her up in the library because I had like blown through a stack of her thrillers that my parents had given me for my birthday or something and I found this time travel series and I was like oh this is fun and I remember just reading the entire like it's a four books and I just blew through that well, I can totally, I get it. Like I, I absolutely get it after reading it, especially like I'm very into time travel mm-hmm. books. Love The Time Traveler's Wife, one of my all-time favorites, although not sure how it would hold up. Like I've heard some mixed things about how it holds up now. So nobody hate me if it doesn't hold up well when I read it. I loved it at the time. It was one of my all-time favorites. So maybe I should include that caveat. But I can see how if you stumbled upon this series, in the library as a kid that you would just blow through the series. For a little context, it came out in 1995. I'm not entirely sure. I should have looked if that was before or after the Janie books. But she did all of her writing in a fairly like compressed period. Like she was just very prolific during this time period. So I can confirm that. Um, but I will say tears that you are not the only one who has told me that they blew through this series. I have gotten a lot of requests from the SSR community. And when I posted pictures of this book, and mentioned that I was reading it over on the old Instagram story, people freaked out. (laughs) That's fantastic. When we were kind of discussing what I would be talking about and like, I don't know who threw out Caroline B. Cooney. And then you like mentioned this title and I was like, oh my God, yes, this book. Like, and it's really wild because there are like very specific lines in this book that I remembered. And like, like I, they have like seared into my brain because I was reading it. I was like, 
oh, this is this is that line that I've always remembered. Or like, this is like this moment between these two characters, even though I remembered very little about the plot, like those things just stuck out to me. And I feel like you don't get that. And yeah, I just feel like you don't really have those reading experiences except for in books that you read as a kid and that just like really stick with you. And this was obviously one that did, even if I didn't remember specifics. Uh, I just really remembered the writing and I remembered the premise. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun to revisit it. Isn't it so weird how the human brain and and how our memories work? Like I've had that experience too with a couple of books that we've read on the podcast where like I don't remember the story, but I remember very specific moments or very specific scenes. But then sometimes it's the opposite. Like I remember this book, like this sort of nebulous idea of the premise but I have no idea who the characters were and I don't remember anything more specific than that. And I, I just like wonder how our brains like sort these books that we read into different categories. Right. Um, but I agree with you. Like I think that the way that we process books as kids and as teenagers is so different. And that's why I love talking about YA and middle grade books on the podcast. It's not because I only read YA in middle grade. I actually wasn't a big YA and middle grade reader before I started the podcast. I just think it's so cool to talk about like why and how these books have made such an impression on us. Yes. And I love like talking with people that I meet now as an adult and people who I wasn't necessarily friends with when I was younger, just to kind of see like, okay, what were you reading when you were that age? And it's always very fascinating to see like the overlap and and other people's experiences with books because it is such a formative time in your life. Yeah. And so many of the books unite us so much, right? Like even people who aren't necessarily readers as adults have read a lot of these books. And it's like this I don't know. It's this thing that we have in common. It's probably, and I hate to be like a lame millennial, but like, it's probably how kids of today will think about YouTubers <laughs> in 20 years. Right. You watch that YouTube channel. <laughs> yes, it's totally true. Yeah, there are just, I think, so many really amazing writers or just, you know, very memorable writers who had such amazing careers in the 90s and early 2000s. And yeah, it's totally my jam being like, did you read that? And just connecting over authors and gushing over them. And then like looking back now too, as an author to see like how prolific some of their careers are like Caroline B. Cooney is impressive to me. And she's still writing it. She published a, an adult thriller, like as recently, I think as last year. Yeah, it was recent. And I, I like had a flash of nostalgia and I was like, I should pick that up because I loved her books as a kid. But then like as a writer now to look back and be like, she wrote so much and she wrote so widely as well. Yeah. I mean, no pressure tears up, but you're right. still going to be writing books in like 30 to 40 years if you want to keep up with our girl Caroline B. Cooney. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's the plan. <laughs> I have every faith in you. So let's situate ourselves a little bit in this book. The book was published in 1995 and it's set in 1995. And we meet our main character, Annie Lockwood, who is 15 years old. It's her last day of school. Such a lovely time to remember. Like there really is nothing like that feeling. Like I miss that feeling of like, it's the last day of school and the whole summer is before me. And like, even if I have to work, school's out. And I loved school as a kid, but you like, you never recapture that feeling as an adult. It's totally true. So magical. So Annie is feeling that way. And she, okay, we have to talk about her terrible boyfriend. Sean. He's Sean. The worst. He is the literal worst. So he, uh, I don't even know where to begin with him. I have to say, first of all, I'm so glad that it became clear pretty quickly that like we weren't supposed to think he was dreamy. Right. For a second, I was like, oh no, am I supposed to think he's great? Am I supposed to like buy into this fantasy that Annie has with him? But no, Caroline B. Cooney made it very clear that like, 
we're supposed to hate him. Yeah. And I appreciated that because I admit when I first, like the first couple of pages that I started reading this book and, you know, keep in mind, I haven't read it in 15, but probably closer to 20 years. And I was like, hold up, hold up. She's thinking that she can transform her hot, but like disinterested boyfriend into the boyfriend of her dreams. Like, girl, it's not going to happen. And like, she does make it fairly clear, I think, in the first chapter that like Annie knows that this is like futile, but she's she still wants that. And I, that made me a little bit happier because I was like, OK, all right, I because I can't like Sean. I'm too like, I just can't. So um, but I think the thing that annoyed me the most about him is that he calls her ASL instead of Annie. <laughs> like, what the heck? Like nobody, nobody said that you could do that. That's not like a nickname that she likes that she invited you to participate in. You can definitely picture them like bantering and she's like, oh, like, please stop calling me that. And he's like, whatever, ASL. <laughs> right. Like, when I work on my car. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I did kind of like though that she kind of, like she took this like dream boyfriend because even all of Annie's friends are like oh my god you're dating him like why why would you ever break up with him he's so wonderful because he's hot and she shows us that, like just because he's hot doesn't mean that he's a good boyfriend yeah she like kind of gets it like she's, yeah the wheels are definitely starting to turn I think she's she's seeing the red flags but from a distance like she's out in the ocean swimming and the red flags are like on the shore somewhere and she's like I, I see them do I have to go in? Like, can I just kind of stay out here and observe the red flags? Does this mean yeah. I need to have to do something about it? But she's, I think she's smart enough early on to be like, not quite sure, but she really wants to change him, to change him, to change him, which is the theme of like so much of the pop culture. I think I was fed in the 90s and, and the aughts and to some extent, like still today, this idea that like in any romantic comedy or any romance of any sort, it's like, you can definitely sort of like fix up the person that you have a crush on or fix up the person that you're physically attracted to to make them who you want them to be. And we all know that that's just not how the world works. No, not at all. And she even talks about reading the advice columnist and she like knows that this is not a thing that she should be right. like investing her time in. But yet at the same time, she's like so committed to this fantasy. And I was like, I, I, I felt like that was something that I probably would have definitely identified with as a teen this like like not necessarily in this particular situation but like knowing like this is reality but like wanting that fantasy well and it's important that we recognize right now I think even though we don't get some of this information until later in the book that Annie has some stuff going on at home too that I have to believe is informing the romantic decisions that she's making we find out a little later on that her dad is actually having an affair with his co-worker and Annie knows that this is going on her mom doesn't know yet her mom seems to be this like awesome career woman who you know in the, in the 90s that wasn't necessarily like a story we were hearing all the time she gets on the train every day and goes into Manhattan and works on Wall Street and then she comes home and she also seems to be a great mom but she's not around very much because she works a lot and so Annie's dad has like found his way to another woman and that is like not sitting well with Annie for obvious reasons and so I don't know I think I'm sure a psychologist could like probably dig into this a little bit better where like Annie's seeing the you know the first man in her life his attentions are being taken away with another woman and so she's seeing attention from this other like guy at school who's really handsome and who everybody's interested in but who actually isn't being very good to her like there's something there totally and in fact a lot of the characters I think have like these parent issues when yeah. it comes to like looking at their 
at their parents and what they've been exposed to and like that sort of upbringing and then like trying to like extrapolate like okay this is how adult relationships are supposed to work like in my own life but like it's just it's not working out for them yeah which is I think like a very natural thing and something that we all do whether it's with respect to romantic relationships, or even I'm told like to parenting, like you look at your own family members and the people who were around you while you were growing up and you're like, okay, what parts of that do I want to take? What parts of that do I want to adapt? What parts of that do I want to edit? Or what part, you know, where can I sort of just be like, this isn't for me? And I think that's a really good point. Most of the characters in this book are doing that to some degree. And Annie definitely is. And Sean, he's not it. Like he's just not, not the guy, Annie. I appreciate that she's like, kind of realizing it um and she's just such a romantic like she wants to be the one responsible for turning him from this guy who only cares about cars to this guy who would be very comfortable in a 19th century mansion at a ball doing whatever it is that men in a 19th century mansion do and Annie's not quite sure what that is but she really wants to find out and she wants Sean to adopt all of those attributes Yes, but of course, Sean won't. So she falls through time and she finds it. I mean, what else would you do? I mean, that seems like the only natural, natural thing to do next. Right. She decides to wander through this mansion that's in their town. And an interesting little fact that I discovered while I was doing some research is that Caroline Cooney had initially conceived of this book as being set in a town called Todd's Point, which is a beach town, I think, near where she grew up. But then she realized that she was going to have the like villain character be named like Mr. Todd. So that it would correspond with this Todd's Point mansion or Todd's Point town. But she discovered after doing some research that Miss, like the real Mr. Todd was actually a really nice guy. <laughs> and for the purposes of the story, the Mr. Todd character has to be the villain, has to be really evil and misogynistic and terrible. And she was like, I can't do that. So she decided to change the setting to Stratton's point. And so Annie finds herself wandering around Stratton Manor, Stratton Mansion, which is this sort of decrepit falling down mansion in their town. um, And they're demolishing it. And that's kind of where she finds Sean. He's working on his car near there because he actually lives in one of like the apartments that the mansion has been converted into. And yes, as she is wandering through the mansion, she is pulled through time. As one is. It was funny because that was like such a very long drawn out scene of her falling through time because it's like she's wandering through the mansion. She's imagining what it might have been when she was, you know, or when it was new and when um, the 1890s were just like opulent and there were balls. And as she's drifting through the rooms, she's kind of like, it's not quite clear if she's imagining it or if she's actually seeing it. But then in the next chapter you get Stratton's point of view or Strat's point of view and he's this boy this 18 year old boy from from 1895 and he actually lives in this mansion and he sees this ghost girl wandering around his house and he's like what what is going on and it just like takes two chapters for her to like sort of actually solidify into the 1890s which that was like one of the things that I like very I remembered very vividly from reading this for the first time yeah it's definitely this long drawn out experience of her falling through time and I had a weird reaction to one line which was like when he sees her for the first time I think it's even like a cliffhanger for a chapter or it's at least like a section break it says like he had witnessed her being born yeah and I of course immediately go to like okay is is he her grandfather (laughs) and so she's gone back through time she's met her grandfather or is like is this a doctor who like this is where my literal mind is going or maybe I'm just like overwhelmed (laughs) with 
life in 2021. So then I was like, okay, so now they they're having like flirtations, they're bantering with each other, but is this her grandfather? It threw me off. But of course, like what the author was intending was like he sees her being born into 1895. Yes, there's a lot of interesting language choices when Strat comes into play, which I don't know, I kept like going back and forth on to like cringing because there's a lot of sexist language. There's a lot of like what we could argue was like how young men might have thought in 1895 um not that that's an excuse but but then like there's some like really sweet moments where he's just like so attracted to her and he just like wants to help her but then you're like he's also like totally entranced by the fact that she's not wearing stockings and he can see her her like up to her knees and I'm like what what is going on here so that was kind of weird and that was also I think the chapter where like the first line that really made like my eyebrows like leap up because um, Caroline Bikuni writes that like one of them stares at the other as though they were an exotic Indian. And like that was very problematic. Like that is not language that anybody should be using. And I don't care if it was 1995. So like that was like one of those moments where I was just like, yeah, this book is showing its age. Yeah, I think the other interesting thing about reading this book in 2021, and obviously I'm coming to this with fresh eyes, so I'm curious what your thoughts on this would be as somebody who read it in the 90s, I would assume, or in the early aughts. I think that sort of one of the sneaky theses of this book, that's a weird phrase, sneaky theses, is that like, look how far we have come between 1895 and 1995 in terms of the way that we treat women, in terms of the way that we talk about women in terms of the way that relationships are structured, in terms of what marriage means. A hundred years, so much happens. Like we're so respectful to women now. It's so much better. Yeah. And (laughs) reading this in 2021, I'm like, no, you guys are, you have so, so, so far to go still. And so many of the dynamics that Annie is willing to accept from her 1995 life and so many of the things that she is able to view as sort of progressive based on her experience in 1895 is like, no, this is still so misogynistic, so patriarchal, so disrespectful to women, so classist, like the list goes on. And we say on the podcast all the time, like to an extent, we of course have to take these books based on where, when, where, how they were written. But to your point, like it is still hard to stomach certain language and certain concepts, even if they were written in a year when maybe we didn't have different kinds of language to talk about things. Um, So for me, that was really interesting because we see that a lot, of course, in the books that we cover on the podcast, right? Like naturally certain things aren't going to age well in these books. But it was extra interesting with both sides of time because like, I think one of the points that the author was trying to make was like, we have progressed so far. And now 25 years later, 26 years later now, it's like, it doesn't feel to me that you have. And so it just added this extra layer that was interesting as a reader. Yeah. And I think that when, if you're looking at like the very narrow view that Cooney is taking in this book, where we're talking about white women. We're talking about women that are 
pretty privileged because I mean, I'm assuming that if Annie's mom works on Wall Street, like they're not exactly hurting for money. And then she goes back in time to people, these white women who live in a mansion. And like, I do have empathy for some of the characters because you learn that one of the characters is Harriet. She's an orphan. She's a ward of Strat's father. She wants to marry Strat because she loves him and because marriage is like the only way that she can have a secure future. So she also has this caretaker slash, I forget what her, her chaperone is what it's Mm -hmm. called. And her name is Aunt Ada. And Aunt Ada has like no money, no prospects. She's old. I was not at all comfortable with the way that CUNY very much vilified the fact that like, because she's old and because she's not attractive, therefore like she's very villainous and she's not a good person and she doesn't deserve our sympathy. And so you have like, you know, but they're still pretty privileged because they're white and they're rich. And you have like been this maid who's Irish American. She's Irish, but she lives in the US. She's an immigrant. She's facing a lot of like xenophobia and she does have to work for a living. And like that's kind of like the only sort of glimpse of like somebody who's not like this, this upper class and like Bridget, this maid is just treated horribly. But I also felt like they didn't really dive into like those class aspects as much. And then you just have Annie who's like floating back and forth between the centuries. Like this is her playground. And I, you know, it, it was a little bit hard for me to, to read with my, my adult sort of perspective and especially in 2021 just knowing what I know about history and yeah knowing what like has happened in the last 21 years and yeah it was like yeah this is you can get a sort of feminist message if you really look at it in a narrow way Um, but you start thinking about it and you're like I don't know it just didn't it didn't quite work for me as an adult yeah I mean I think where we really see a sense of progress maybe between 1895 and 1995, if we want to look at it in a really narrow way, is in a lot of the language about marriage and sort of about the politics of relationships and the proprietary nature of engagements and marriages. Um, And not to say that those things don't still happen because I know that they do, but I think that what I took from this book was that in 1895, at least in this particular kind of circle, in this social context in the US, the ubiquitous idea was that arranging marriages, setting up marriages was all in service of concentrating money and concentrating power and organizing families so that money flowed in certain directions and maintaining status in certain kinds of ways. Strat's father is like very intent on having Harriet marry Strat because Harriet has all of this money. Like even though she is an orphan and we're meant to believe that she's not very good looking, you know, she has all of these other, as Strat's father sees it, like all of these other benefits because she's wealthy. And so between her money and the Stratton money, like they can really take over and then nobody will bring them down. And there's a couple of other arrangements kind of at play in the book as we're, as we meet new characters And really everything that has to do with marriage is about status, power, wealth, class, and and it's all very patriarchal. It's about men maintaining their power and often using women's bodies and using women's money to like keep that going. Yes. Not to say that didn't happen at all in 1995, not to say that it doesn't happen in 2021, but 
I think that it's less ubiquitous. It's certainly not the way it's discussed in the circles that I'm part of. Um, it's interesting because I'm actually about halfway through a book for the podcast and that episode will be coming out soon, but it's the Marie Antoinette Royal Diaries book. I don't know if you read those. I when did. You read yes. And I mean, talk about arranging marriages yeah. to concentrate power. So between that book and this book, I am like, my my brain is firing on all cylinders about like how much progress we've theoretically made on the language we use about relationships and marriage. So I do think that if we're looking at that very narrow slice, I would make an argument that between 1895 and 1995, there was quite a bit of progress made. Yes, absolutely. And especially with just like women asserting their own autonomy and being able to pursue jobs and education, um, that is definitely true. And I can't fault the book for that. And and in fact, there is a, a moment towards the end where Aunt Ada is sort of revealed as like this villain mastermind. And Annie realizes that like what she's done is really, really bad, but also like Aunt Ada's as much trapped in time as Annie is when she falls back in 1995 or in 1895 and can't get back to her own on time. But Aunt Ada's entrapment is more of like, you know, she's a smart woman who just was never given any opportunities. And so like, this is what she's become. And I think that like that is, was a solid point that the author made. Yeah. And I think there's also just this prevailing sense that like every woman in 1895 is trapped in her own way. Aunt Ada is a great example. Harriet is a great example because yes, she has all of the opportunity that her money affords her, but she really lacks self-esteem and self-confidence because she's not as beautiful as the other girls in her life. Strat's younger sister, Devony, I think is how we would mm -hmm. pronounce her name. Devony, even though she has money and she seems to be pretty and like charming and all of these things like she is very aware of the limits of her autonomy she goes to make a phone call and she's terrified to even use the phone without her father's permission and I think now like I I'm sure I, I can hear people being like oh you know privilege problems which is true to an extent but this is this is the information that Annie needs to absorb in order to understand like the limits of this time period that she has so far done nothing but romanticize. And yes, these are privileged problems to have, but it's also an important dose of perspective for somebody like Annie who feels so stuck in her own life and feels like everything is better a hundred years earlier. Like it's, I think it's really informative for her to see that you don't necessarily want to be a woman in 1895, even if it means that you get to wear a beautiful gown, even if it means that you have people waiting on you, like being part of this society means that you're part of these very dangerous and scary and mean politics that you have very little control over. Absolutely. And I think Annie, like that is a big theme of this book is like Annie's romanticism and her romantic ideals. And then like seeing what the reality is and the consequences of like buying into those romantic ideals without really questioning like the power structures that are at play. And I think, you know, that book did a decent job of that. There's a moment where she's just like completely blissed out on this idea of like she attended a ball, she got to dance and then she's getting ready for bed and the maid is helping her do all of these things. And it's just a luxurious experience. And she's like, this is what it was like. And then she realized is like that the maid is doing this for her and nobody's doing this for the maid mm -hmm. and it's kind of like this this moment of like oh and I, I mean I don't think that Cooney really lingers on that and I guess maybe I would have liked to see 
that sort of awareness that Annie had in that moment sort of drawn throughout the rest of the book because I felt like it was a little bit lacking, but it was there. And I think that that was, you know, probably like the, the like the basic like starting level of feminism and history for me as a teen reader, like in the early aughts when I read this book. So um, I don't want to sound like I'm coming down too hard on it because it does do some of this, but it is like we've said, just a very sort of narrow point of view. Yeah. I mean, welcome to SSR. We sound like we're coming down <laughs> on things that we really love and that we have a lot of nostalgia for, which is the challenge and the beauty of it. I think the other thing that was interesting kind of in that vein is that Annie realizes that being coddled by a man is not really what she wants all the time. I mean, she really likes the attention that Strat gives her. And let's be real, we do not want at all what Sean is offering. I mean, no. he does not even acknowledge her existence, really, and she would do anything for him. So he's one extreme. But then Strat thinks that she needs a fainting couch every time she gets even a little bit emotional about something that's completely reasonable. Like, I get that it would be hard to believe that somebody had traveled through time, but she could just say that she had like stubbed her toe and he would be like, I need you to get a fainting couch because I don't believe that you stubbed your toe. Are you okay? Let me take care of you. I think you're seeing things. This is really upsetting for me. Please don't talk about this. Also, <laughs> why don't you lay down? You're going to get the vapors. Yes. It's sunny and women are weak, so we don't right. want you out in the sun. Right. Like, do you need a parasol? If you don't have a parasol, you can't go outside. You have to stay inside. It's because I love you. It's because you're beautiful, but you have to stay inside. And I think, you know, there's, of course, this very tired idea of like the grass is always greener on the other side, but that's a trope because it works and because it's effective. And we see it, I think, work really well in this book where Annie has this idea of what kind of life she wants, of what kind of man she wants, of what kind of relationship she wants, of how she wants to be treated which is in direct opposition to the boy that she's landed herself back home in 1995. And she finds that like the opposite extreme does not make her feel independent. It does not make her feel like herself. It does not give her any sense of autonomy or of like being her own person. And that feels pretty crappy too. So it's this idea that like, yes, yeah, somewhere in that spectrum in the middle, you will find a healthy relationship. But I, act I actually really like that. That worked well for me. Yeah, I think that was really good. And I know that one thing that surprised me as I read this book again now, before I had reread it, I had this memory of this series and, you know, there's four books. And my memory was that like throughout the four books, they were always trying to find a way back to each other because like, okay, that's like time travels books, especially if you have two people falling in love in different time periods like that. Yeah, it's pretty much to be expected. But then when I was rereading and we get to the part at the end where Annie sees like the havoc that she has wreaked by coming back in time and how it's like messed everything up and basically kind of like how selfish she is for wanting her like romantic historical experience that like these are real people whose lives that she's kind of just thrown in this upheaval and she actually decides to go back and I had forgotten that and as an adult reader I was like good like she should realize that like this is not my time this is this is not a good thing that I have done so I need to just like go back to my own time and deal with my stuff there rather than trying to like run away and have this like fantastical life that I think would be perfect where I'm weighted on hand and foot in the, the past. Yeah, there is some sense of accountability. Um, listeners, for a little bit of context, in her first trip to 1895, 
she has some fun, but she also causes a lot of problems. She throws off Strat's relationship prospects because he is, of course, immediately obsessed with her. And so now things are off the rails with Harriet, who is now engaged to one of Strat's father's friends, who's not a good guy. And then there's a murder and Bridget the maid is accused and and Annie pieces out because she thinks that she's the one being accused. And so yeah, she leaves her 1895 community in a state of total disarray, which she didn't really intend to do. Like she got emotional because she thought that they were accusing her of the murder and she just kind of runs and she runs her way right into 1995. And wouldn't we all like to run our way right into 2022 right about now? Um, or at least I'm going to say like September, October of 2021. I would love to do that. Maybe we all run fast enough and get upset enough. Like we'll be right there. But yeah, she, she kind of goes back to 1995. She falls smack in the middle of this stuff that's going on with her family, with her father's affair, which gets pretty messy. She also has to deal with Sean and her friends who are terrible and who are just oh, pushing yeah. toward this awful guy. Girlfriend, get some new friends who lead you in the direction of men who will respect you. Yes. I do appreciate, though, that she breaks up with Sean in that little interlude yeah. when she's back in 1995. But, like, in typical guy fashion, he's like, what? No, we're fine. Yeah, you we're know? Not and up. he, like, refuses to believe that they are broken up. Like, he follows her around. Like, no, no, we're still together. Who's that guy you were with? I will beat him up because he's a man and he's got to do that. And I do appreciate that Annie kind of stays strong and it's just like, ew, no, get away from me. Yeah, I like that about her, too. And I, I like that she knew she had to go back to 1895 and deal with everything that happened. But I do have some other thoughts about her whole mindset around like, I caused all of these problems and I need to figure it out. And this might be controversial. You might not agree with me. I can't wait to hear what you think. All right. Lay it on me. She was kind of driving me crazy <laughs> because in, in the way of a lot of 15-year-olds, and I'm sure I was like this when I was 15, and I've read a lot of other 15-year-olds characters who have this mindset. But I just felt as if it kept being like, I have caused everything. I have ruined everything because Strat loves me. I have caused all these issues with Sean. Like, I look at everything that I have done. I have ruined everything for everybody because people love me and they hate me and this and that. And it's just this sense of like, I am the center of everyone's universe. Yeah. And again, I do think it's reflective of like being a teenager. And so I'm not like trying to be rude to her. Also, she's a character. <laughs> but it was kind of driving me crazy as an adult reader. Yeah, I think that like there's a point towards the end where she is like feeling remorse for like the actual harm that she's caused. And then she was like, oh, well, the murder never would have happened if um, if I hadn't shown up. Right. And I wanted to be like, girl, no, like that murder was going to happen either way. You just happened to like show up at the worst possible time so that like your appearance kind of like threw everything off. Right. And that was like a weird sort of like spin on it. Also, I have to say, I totally forgot that there was a murder mystery in this book until I was rereading it, which is funny. But now it seems like totally on par for the fact that like Caroline McKinney writes a lot of mysteries and thrillers. So, of course, you would have this time travel romance with a murder mystery in there. Uh, yeah, I think she kind of thought that like everything was her fault. But like the the reality is like a lot of the major issues and conflicts in the past, in that 1895 timeline, like existed completely separate of her and her appearance just complicated things. So I'm actually with you on that one. Right. Like you didn't cause everything to happen. And just because Strat thinks you're beautiful and likes you and probably loves you, uh, that doesn't mean that like you caused every single thing in the timeline to happen or change. 
And I would have like been on board with it if she had that sort of inner monologue like once or twice. But I feel like she had like seven, eight, nine, ten of those inner monologues. And Mm -hmm. I was like, take accountability. Go get your man if that's what you want to do. But like, trust me, this is all not your fault. You are not the cause of all good things or of all bad things. But I do think like that's a thing that you learn as you get older. And and honestly, something that I'm still working on. It's like that thing that I feel like so many people are still trying to break the conditioning of, of like everybody hates me all the time or like I always did something wrong. Yeah. And it's just magnified in this book where she just thinks like everything is her responsibility, good and bad. Yes. Yeah. To like – the point where sometimes it is good because she it forces her to kind of act in a responsible manner. Um, but sometimes it's not so good because she bursts out and tells people things that she probably shouldn't. I don't know how you feel about the moment when she tells her mom that her dad's been cheating. I feel like on a very human and petty level, I'm like, yeah, that's what you get for trying to sneak around on your wife and your kids already know. But was it the kind thing to do with like the way she revealed it in that moment? That was rough. Yeah, I have similarly complicated feelings. Like, I think that I would have felt just as icky if I'd known that like, Annie had known that this was going on for months at a time, and she was going to continue to let it happen without letting anybody know. That feels gross too, because obviously like you want her to be looking out for her mom. I don't know. I guess like I like to think that maybe she'd already tried to talk to her dad about it once or twice and he'd been dismissive of her Mm -hmm. and she'd been asking him to come clean and he said he wouldn't do it. And so now like she's emotionally distraught because of, you know, the time travel and everything and the the cross century love triangle that she's now <laughs> caught in the middle of. And so she she can wait no longer and she has to tell her mom the truth. That might not be true. This might just be like the first time she's sharing it with anybody. Yeah, you don't really get to know in the book, which I think is a no. little bit it. I actually, you know, the part where she introduces her dad's infidelity, it's so abrupt. It's like yeah. she's thinking about the future and then all of a sudden she's like, my dad's a cheater. And I'm like, wait, wait, did I... Did I skip something here? So uh, yeah, I feel like that part, it was good because I think it informs the reader a lot about Annie's state of mind and like what we kind of touched upon earlier when we were talking about like what is influencing her thoughts about romance. But at the same time, I think I wanted just like a little bit more fleshed out there. Well, because there was a big difference between if Annie had tried to talk to her dad about it and hadn't gotten anywhere and is just so tired of living a lie and wants to tell her mom and then her just like that's one situation Mm -hmm. a very different situation is her just being like fucking I'm over lying here's what happened in the middle of like a conversation with her parents two very different scenarios yes um I would have liked a little bit more information about that too I think another theme of this book that I I think is um bold and a lot is that like all men are unfaithful yeah that was really interesting and it was interesting to me where Devaney kind of assumes that her brother will turn out the same way because that's all she knows from her father. And I was like, wow, that's that's a lot right there. And even even Strat, I don't know. I don't know if he really kind of questions that. Like he sees his dad's behavior and kind of knows that it's BS. But at the same time, there wasn't anything like overtly on the page of like, oh, I would never do that you know? Yeah, I guess we're supposed to believe that like, he's the only one who wouldn't because it does seem like basically every other man that we come in contact with is not faithful. Like, obviously, Annie's dad is having an affair. Sean, I think, probably like does not have that 
much like focus on being faithful in a relationship. If nothing else, he will cheat on you with his cars and he will spend all his time with his cars. So you will not have his full attention. And then once we shift back to the 1895 timeline, there's a line that I don't think I'll ever forget where I can't remember if it's Harriet or Devaney, but they're talking about like, oh, we know about fathers. Yes. We know how it works with fathers. Fathers always have like a woman on the side. And so Strat's dad has been married several times and has never really been faithful to any of his wives. And then there's this awful character, Walk, Strat's friend, who is like the Chuck Bass. He has just slept with all of his maids. He's gotten two of them pregnant. And then his dad just sort of like helps them disappear to other houses. And then the babies are taken to orphanages. Like this is just how men operate in this book and in this world. I wish that there had been like one trustworthy dude. Yeah, because even even though Strat doesn't cheat or like show any inclination of like actually, you know, wanting to be unfaithful, like he also kind of knows that he should be marrying Harriet. And then the second Annie shows up, he's like, that's the one that I'm in love with, even though I don't know anything about her. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's not something that I necessarily want to like absolutely condemn him for because he's not engaged to Harriet and there is like no commitment there and he's only 18. So it's like, you know, it's kind of silly to expect an 18 year old um, to just like, you know, that's the girl I have to be faithful to, but how quickly he becomes obsessed with Annie to the point where like you, they find out that somebody has been murdered and there's like some very serious repercussions to this murder. And one of the maids then is like thrown into jail and all he can think about is like how much he loves Annie and he's like neglecting all of these other duties. So it didn't make him look great. Right. I don't I don't think that he's necessarily going to cheat, but I echo your concerns about the relationship with Harriet. And as for how quickly they fell for each other once Annie went back to 1895, I'll echo my writing professors and I'll just say, I wish we could have slowed that moment down. Right. <laughs> right like they basically just like walk together on the beach and he decides that he's in love with her but I think it's half lust because she's wearing a dress that is probably considered conservative for 2021 but is definitely scandalous for 1895 and you know that he's 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 got something on his mind and it's not Annie's intellect right I mean, I, I can suspend my disbelief for a love at first sight situation. Yeah. I can I can go there if an author wants me to go there. But I guess I felt like it seemed important for me to believe in my heart of hearts that Strat was a really good guy. Like it seemed important in order for me to fully like buy into this whole community of characters. It seemed important for me to like know for sure that he was different than all of these other men. And because we didn't, get the chance to slow that moment down and because we didn't really see them like interacting in any real way or falling in love like I just didn't feel like I knew him very well and I don't want to say that I didn't like him as like a romantic lead because I didn't dislike him I just wish I'd gotten to know him a little bit better but I also feel like I would have liked to get to know Annie better and luckily Mm -hmm. there's three more books in the series and I assume that we do get to know her better over the course of those books but for me like 
again, I can buy into love at first sight, but I think it's always helpful at least to maybe get to know the characters as individuals a little bit better before. Like if we'd known more about each of them before they meet, I'm like, sure, if you guys want to fall in love immediately, sure. But mm-hmm. but it, it just all happened so quickly. It didn't feel earned, that's for sure. And one interesting thing to note about the structure of this book, in case anybody listening has not read it, is that you get into the heads of so many different characters. Like, it's not just a dual point of view with Annie and Strat. Like, you get into Devony, Harriet's walks head, he's terrible. You get into Aunt Ada's head, you get into Bridget's head. So, like, there's there's so much happening as this mystery is unfolding. And while that, like, keeps the plot moving and, you know, keeps that, like... It made it feel like a really fast read. You don't get like that really good quality time and character growth with Annie and Strat, which is interesting because they're supposed to be the focal point of the story. Yeah. And I think that that is really interesting because there aren't that many books that I read that I feel really get you into all those different perspectives. So that is, it's like a cool experience as a reader. And it means that there's a lot packed into this book and obviously like so much that you and I aren't going to get to over the course of this conversation. But yeah, I I agree. Like the use of these different perspectives means that we are able to have a love at first sight story and a time traveling narrative and a murder mystery and an exploration of like, class and gender and patriarchy and all these other things between centuries like we're able to do a lot in a relatively short book because we have all these different characters which is cool and I I can see how this whole series would be super engrossing one small detail that I wanted to mention before we start to wrap things up is there's a moment when Annie is getting ready for the ball or like one of the big dances at the mansion once she time travels back to 1895 And the maids spend all this time getting her ready. Of course, there's a corset involved and like all of these different layers of dresses. And this is a really small thing, but she notices that nobody's wearing makeup. And of course, she had arrived from 1995 wearing like normal makeup for a 15-year-old. And maybe I read too much into this, but I, I noted it because I feel like it's such an interesting like little moment of different like beauty standards from one century to the other, which I think is so important now, like in the age of Instagram filters and all of the pressures that we are constantly putting on ourselves, particularly as women to like look a certain way and to keep up with the appearances that are considered beautiful in whatever context we're living. It's like, no, like it changes, you know, like one year it's cool to wear makeup and in another year they're like, why would you ever put anything on your face? Like, why would you, it's always changing. And so maybe it sounds like a small thing, but it was something that I I remembered from the book because I feel like it's just a cool thing for all of us to remember no matter what year we're reading the book in. Yes, that is a very good point. Because maybe I don't want to wear makeup one day and that's fine, even though Instagram tells me that I have to have a filter on my face if I don't. Exactly. You can just decide that you don't want to do that. And it's totally cool. Yeah. And I'm not wearing a corset either. Thank you very much. (laughs) On the whole, Tirza, how do you feel like this rereading experience held up to your memories of this book? Has it let you down? Did it hold up? I know that this is often a complicated question to answer. So feel free to take your time and to sort of have it be a little bit of a murky response. I am glad that I reread this book. And I think in part because it's always interesting to revisit the things that you really were drawn to and identified with as a younger reader. 
Uh, I think that anytime I do revisit something, even if I don't like it as an adult, it, it's fascinating to see the things that resonated with me as a young reader. And that always gets me thinking about like the, how I approach my own writing and how I decide, you know, what to incorporate in and how to do it and, and how to kind of like hook younger readers. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think this book ages very well, um, which isn't to say it's like terrible, horrible, should never be read. Like it is out of print, but you can get it as an ebook and as an audiobook. So it's definitely something you can go out there and read. But like, I just think at this point, there are better books that I would hand to, you know, my 12 year old self or any other 12 year old out there, um, especially one that's like interested in historical books and romance and feminism. So yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like a, yeah, it's loaded answer in question because it's like, I'm happy that I personally reread it. Maybe probably wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but it is interesting to see, kind of see like those earlier influences and, you know, how I might've responded to it as a young reader. I think that's a very like balanced reflection. (laughs) (laughs) Other than both sides of time, what have you been reading lately that you've been really enjoying? Maybe more than both sides of time. (laughs) So lately, let's see. I don't know why this question is always so hard to answer because I literally keep a spreadsheet of like everything I read. I just finished Moxie by Jennifer Matthew. And that was really fun. Like that is a book that has literally been on my TBR since it came out. And it took like the Netflix movie for me to be like, I'm going to read that. And then let's see. I have also um, right now I'm currently listening to The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. And she's a fellow 2021 debut author. Um, I think by the time this episode airs, her book will be out or, or will be out like very, very soon. But The Firekeeper's Daughter is a mystery and it's uh, set in 2004, 2005, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And I was really excited to pick it up because I'm from Michigan. And it is just a really amazing mystery starring a biracial Native American white teenager. And I'm loving it so far. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I will include links to both of them in the show notes for this episode. And we, of course, have to talk about your book, Tirza. As you mentioned, you're a 2021 debut author. When this episode airs on March 23rd, your book will be like two weeks out from being out in the world. Congratulations in advance. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your book. Thank you. Yeah, so my first book is Pride and Premeditation. It is book one of the Jane Austen murder mystery series, and it is a murder mystery retelling of Pride and Prejudice. It is set in the Regency time period in London, although it's a little bit of an anachronistic sort of Regency era. took a few liberties there. And it stars Lizzie Bennet, who aspires to have a career in law. But of course, women aren't allowed to practice law at this time. Her father is a barrister. So she's like trying to convince him to train her. And she becomes convinced that um, if she can solve her own case and sort of uh, represent somebody legally, she can prove that she has what it takes. So being no underachiever, she tracks down a murder case. Mr. Bingley has been accused of murder and she goes to represent him, but he already has counsel in the form of Mr. Darcy. So the two are kind of going head to head as they're solving this murder mystery. That is so fun. Thanks. 
The idea of writing a mystery feels very daunting to me. So I'm super impressed that you pulled it off. And also just the idea of like tackling a giant like Pride and Prejudice. I have so much respect for that. And I'm just like so excited for your book to be out in the world and for people to be able to enjoy it. Listeners, I will include a link to Tears' book in the show notes for this episode as well. So you can go check that out, pre-order it when the episode is live and then get yourself a copy a few weeks down the road. And of course, I will include links to, I guess, like used bookstores. I have a used copy of both sides of time. So I'll find some links for those who want to check it out, maybe over on Libro FM if you want to listen to it. But there will be lots of good stuff in the show notes for you to check out, lots of books for you to read and listen to. Tirza, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me tonight, for sharing this book with me, for having a balanced, complicated conversation (laughs) about all kinds of things. And again, I'm just so excited for you and excited to be part of this celebration for your book. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun and really any excuse to read anything and talk about Caroline B. Cooney. It's just a joy. You found the right place. Anytime you want to talk about Caroline B. Cooney, I'm right here. Awesome. <laughs> Bye. Take care. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.